Now today I'd like to share with you something that uh, continues from last week, and I'd like to turn with you to that passage in Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, regarding the children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 52, regarding the children of Israel. Isaiah 52 speaks to especially Judah, the southern kingdom, um, regarding their state at that time. And uh, everything is in turmoil, it's in ruins, and you can hardly see the treasure of God's hand upon um, Judah. And I'm going to use Judah and Israel interchangeably. Um, You can hardly see it for the rubble. There's hardly any hope. In fact, Israel had lost its identity, forgot who they are. And Isaiah speaks to Israel at their lowest point. And you can probably not imagine how shocked and how amazed Israel would be to receive such a prophecy because they are now oppressed. They are oppressed by the Babylonians. They've been oppressed by the Assyrians. They've been oppressed for most of their history that is rememberable. Okay? And so let's look at this from verse 1. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. That is the spiritual name for Israel. It's almost as if Zion speaks of the fact that Israel has another dimension of identity. It's called Zion. Later on, the writer to Hebrews says that Zion is the place of an innumerable company of angels, of the spirits of just people made perfect. It's the place where God's purposes are fully fulfilled. It's full of glory and full of light. And in the midst of their darkness, um, Isaiah is calling them Zion. Clothe yourself in your, Zion, your strength, O Zion. Right? That has nothing to do with Zionism. That's, Zionism is an opposite kind of entity. But Zion is how God recognizes Israel in spite of all its negative circumstances. Okay? Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. That means your redemption cannot be bought by money. It has to be something that is supernatural. Right? You were sold. Your preciousness, your power, your glory was sold out. You were redeemed, with, but you will be redeemed without money, for such is the Lord. My people went down the first into Egypt, and you know the time of slavery, 400 years, to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl. And my name is continually blasphemed all day long. A very sad, very hopeless state of affairs. And then verse 6 says, Therefore, in contradistinction and opposite to to, to, to what he had just described, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. And he basically delineates three very precious treasures that make them a distinct people, that make them a people who have a tremendous 
mission to the world. That is, they will know his name, they will know his voice, they will know that he was speaking, they will know how to distinguish between the voice of their own thoughts, the, the voice of culture, and the voice of God. They will have that sharpness of distinction, be able to hear his voice, be able to know, know his name, know his voice. And the third thing is that he will know his presence, his presence. He says almost in contrast to everything that you have read uh, from verse 1, he says, therefore, in response to that, how God is going to redeem you is that he is going to actually put in or uncover the treasure that is in your ground, that's in your land. Okay? So that's uh, basically what Isaiah chapter 52 is concerned. It must have been a shock to Israel to hear uh, prophet Isaiah speaking about this because they knew nothing or close to nothing about all the things that he's talking about. What beautiful garments. What beautiful garments. What strength is there? We have no strength. In fact, in Ezekiel, um, the, the, the dry bones were saying, we have, we have no strength. We have lost our life. Not only have we no, no strength, we have no life. And then Isaiah is saying, put on your strength. He didn't say, put on strength. He said, put on your strength. Your strength. Put on your beautiful garments. And the beautiful garments speak of the priestly garments that God had given as, as, a, as a sign of the ministry that God has that will clothe the nation of Israel so that they can act in His stead. Okay? They can act in His stead. These beautiful garments are garments that speak of the anointing of God, the power of God, the love of God, and the wisdom of God that was supposed to operate so that Israel can operate in that divine power, that's who they were. It's amazing, isn't it? And Israel must be thinking, what are you talking about? Look at us. Our hope is far away from us. What are you talking about, beautiful garments? Most of them probably were wearing rags, actually. Put on your beautiful garments, put on your strength. So God is speaking through, through Isaiah and He's saying, He's, ca he's calling them into a different reality. Have you ever been spoken to by people who kind of know you? And they speak to you in relation to and out of that knowledge they have of you. Have you ever had people like that speak to you? They're not that nice sometimes. They speak to you because they are convinced of better things of you. How about that? They don't speak to you in relationship to who you are and where you are now. They don't even speak to you in relation to your pain. They don't, relate, they don't, don't even speak to you in relation to your, um, your affliction. They speak to you in relation to what they know of you that is bigger than you are exhibiting for now. Have you had that? I know of a friend of mine who was, uh, was a, a top musician and went to Berkeley uh, School in Boston, a uh, pianist. And uh, when he, were, when he, 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 was, he was from, he was Malaysian, and he, when he went to study there, there was one particular professor who was really hard on him, really hard on him. 
and he would press him and expect more of him. And every time he did something good, this professor would say, that is crap. What? And this went on for about a year to such an extent that he felt like giving up, felt like, like, like quitting. In Malaysia, he was like top-notch. Now he was in Berkeley, uh, B-R-K-L-E-E, not the other one. Now he was in Berkeley, and, and, and this professor was just really getting on his tail, really getting on his tail. Finally, there was a shift. And after that shift took place, or which were rather gradual, he became really good. And the, the professor put his hand on his back, and he says, okay, now you're good enough. And he knew exactly what the professor was saying. He was saying, you are really good. By my standards, you are really good. I found the good in you. That confidence-destroying year, at the end of that year, put more confidence in him just by that than any kind of affirmation he would have had. You know why? Because the professor knew him better than he knew himself. He had a vision not of what he wants to make him, but a vision of who he was. So Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Israel because he knew them better. He knew them in relation to their calling. They knew, he knew them in relation to their strength, their garments, your strength, your garments. And sometimes we have friends like that who look at us, and not because they don't, dis, they, they don't respect us, but because they respect us more highly, because they, they know us, they speak to us that way. Now, today's message is not about being tough and so that you can hear all this. It's not about that. It's about the fact that God knows us and has called us better than we know ourselves. Amen? I believe that Isaiah was actually speaking as someone who knew them. He knew his people, who they were, and he was calling that out. Um, in the 70s, there was a very well-sold well book by Michael Griffiths called Cinderella with Amnesia. And basically his premise, the premise of his book, Cinderella with Amnesia, was to say that the church has lost or forgotten who they really are, their, their own identity. They've lost a sense of their role in the world by God's power. They've lost their garments, they've lost their strength, they've lost their supernatural power, and they've forgotten who they are. They are lost, and they have acceded to becoming like everybody else, else around them. They have lost their vision of who they were. Today, I'd like to talk about how God is redeeming them. And so what, what, what was happening is that in the nation of Israel and, I, and Isaiah, they could see, he could see the dissonance, the gap between who they really were, who they were meant to be and how they were supposed to function and who they, they were now. And it's almost as if, as Isaiah speaks about their history, you were in Egypt and you were in Assyria and whatever I hear, your, your rulers are howling. It's almost as if he's saying, there's something in your history 
in your foundation that's missing. You miss something. You miss something in your development. And you may have grown in other ways, but there are some treasured, precious, salient, very much more important things that you've lost, causing you to be sold out. And so you've lost something. He doesn't say that to condemn them, but as a word of hope, because he's saying, as a people of God, you have more than what you are exhibiting. It's more than, you have more than what you think you, you, you know. And he's not saying, well, now jump to it and, 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 and let's get with it. Now that you know this, now function differently, now have more confidence. No, this is not a confidence booster. He's not trying to boost their confidence. He's not trying to say, well, you know, you have a very poor self-esteem. Sorry about that. Don't worry. We'll do some therapy upon you and you will be fine. No, he's not saying that. He's saying that what you're going to do is to enter into a process if you're willing to. And if you're willing to enter into the process, you will be redeemed. Yeah? He's not saying all you need is a confidence booster. All you need is people to say, you are really good. You are really good. No, you're not good. You're... I was going to say crappy, but we don't say that on the pulpit. So we will not say that. You are really in bad shape. But bad shape is not your identity. You're far away from where you're supposed to be, but I have more for you. Says God. And so he says this, put on, clothe yourself with your beautiful garments and, uh, and with your strength. And the question is, he gets into for the, for the rest of the chapter, and we will talk more about it in the next few weeks, is how does that actually get redeemed? How can I become more than what I am? There are some of us who are here, and you're thinking, this is actually discouraging. Because you're telling me I should be more. No, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, but there's no condemnation in it because what he's saying is this. You have more, it's hidden. Today there was a word that said that there's water underneath. You've got to dig. You've got to dig. I want to say that in your land, the land that God has placed in you, there are treasures there, but those treasures don't lie on the surface. They are there. And so when, 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 when uh, Peter and John, uh, after the day of Pentecost, were walking on, the day on, on, on their way to the temple, and a man said, you know, asking, can you give me some money? He said, silver and gold have I none, but whatsoever I have, I have, I give to you. And I've shared this before. They said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. If you try doing that yourself, chances are there will be no rising up and no walking. But the, the point is, you have it. You and I have that power. But that power needs to be more than just deep in you. It needs to be brought to the surface of your consciousness and your, 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 your and my uh, awareness. You have to be present to it. And perhaps that's what today's message is about. It's about the fact that we are called by God for something more. But it doesn't come just by saying, you are more, you are great. Have confidence. No, it means that there is a process in which God is redeeming us and that process can begin right now. All right, let's talk about it. And, he, and, and, and it's almost as if Isaiah is looking back at the history of Israel and saying, something 
did not get set right in your foundation. You don't know your, the name of your God. You don't know your God. You don't know His voice. And you don't know His presence. Verse 6. You don't know that. And I don't mean just knowing it. You don't experience it. It's not real to you. It's not knowledge that has become hardened like a rock that resists every other opposite thing. You don't know that. You don't, you don't experience it. You're not present to it. It's not real to you. And somehow, even though you are that, a person who can know God, you can know His voice and know His presence and move with Him, you're not operating in it. It's missing in your life. And so that great therefore in verse 6, verse 1 to verse 5, this is how you are living. This is how you should be. Verse 6, therefore, therefore, as, as a move of God in His redemption towards you, you will know your God. You will know His voice and distinguish it from your own voice so that the voice of God is not just some kind of aesthetic, imaginative uh, um, um, thing that is creative. It is something that is distinct from human. Distinct from human. You can fool, fool some people some of the time, but you can't fool everybody else. No matter how beautiful your prophecy is, no matter how beautiful your words of, of Christianity is, you can't fool everybody in the time, all the time. You can say nice things, but when push comes to shove, when a miracle is needed and a miracle does not happen, then it's exposed. What Isaiah is not doing is he's not making fun of them. He's saying, you will know God in that way. Amen? You will know God in that way. My, dad, my, my daughter said one day, I know God exists. I know He's real and He speaks. I said, how? He said, when I was waiting for my results, for my MCAT, I won't tell you which daughter. I thought I was not going to make it. And then you told me, what my score would be. And the Lord spoke that score to me. I won't tell you what it was. That score was a specific number. And I wrote it down a few months, I think one or two months before that. And the day came when her results were brought and she got exactly that score. Exactly score. And she said to me one day, I know God is real. And He speaks to you. I'm talking about something that God is restoring back to the church. Now, what I'm talking about is just something that's kind of mundane, but something that God has for you. Now, I don't know how you're going to respond to what I'm saying to you. I hope you will not think that I'm rebuking you or that I'm thinking that you, that you and I are just hopeless and good for nothing. I, wanna, I, ho I hope that t today, I'm really praying that today there will be a new move that will put to the side all minor things so that you and I will know our calling and not only know it up here, but we will make moves towards that calling that God has given to us, that we will know Him, that we will know His name, know His voice, and know His 
presence. All right, let's go into it. Let's talk about this. When God says, you will know my name. Verse 6, we'll just read it. Hopefully, we will all have this (laughs) memorized by heart. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am, my presence. Yeah. May, may I suggest to you that actually what Isaiah was saying to the nation of Israel is that they had lost their calling from God. They lost their calling. They, they forgot, they've forgotten their, 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 um, their identity. And so God says to them, therefore in that day you will know my name. Now, I used to think that meant, you know, God has many names, and each one of them talks about his attributes, right? He's God, Jehovah Jireh, Jireh, the Lord of Surprise, the Lord of Supplies, the, the, Jehovah Rafe, the God who heals. He's got all these names. And so I thought at first that Isaiah was saying, you will know the attributes of God, that you will know God in his character. And how will you do that? Well, I guess when you relate to him more, you will know his character and you will know him by experience. I think that's true. But that's not really the, 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 the major thrust of that, that phrase. When God says, you will know my name, he's talking about a privileged knowledge that came when the deity discloses his identity, his name, to someone else. In those days, when Moses was hanging around, the deities would always have a secret name. They would never reveal it to anybody. Even people of great power, people, men of spirit, they would not reveal their names to, to people because those names were kind of magic and they, 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 had, they, they, they had locked up secrets to them. And so, when God reveals himself to Moses surprisingly, and Moses asks God in chapter 3 of Exodus, when I go to the people of Israel, to my people, and say, God has spoken to me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? And Moses is is asking a very shrewd question. Moses is saying, when they ask me, what is his name? They're not saying, hey, who talked to you? Can you give me his address? They're saying, I want to test you out to see whether you have any, th- any privileged information or not. Whether you have any special in to this God who has spoken to you. Because God's don't reveal their names. People call this, their God's names Baal or or, or, or whatever, Asherah and all that. But the gods never revealed a name. It was not just a name that's called. When God dis- discloses his name in, ancient, in, ancient, in the ancient Near East and with the, the biblical text, he's saying, I'm revealing to you my secrets. That means I'm revealing to you things that I will not reveal to other people. It's privileged information. And when Moses asked God, what shall I say is your name? You can tell the, the, God said, you can tell the people, I did reveal my name to you. I did. The question is not what his name is, John or 
Frida or whatever. It's not. Is he called Yahweh? Is he what? No. The question is, did he reveal his name to you? Does that make sense? Did he actually disclose himself to you? Are you in that relationship with him in which he tells you the secrets, the secrets that none of us can have? Did he do that or not? He's not saying, he's not saying, well, what is, what, is, what is God's name? John? No. He's saying, did you have an experience in which God somehow, out of all the people in the earth, choose you to actually show you his inner secrets, his inner, the inner sanctum of his heart? And Moses was going to be able to tell them, yes, that happened, because I encountered him. He encountered me. I could not make him do that. I'm, who am I? I'm but a worm. But he opened his heart to me and he revealed himself to me. And I will testify to that by signs and wonders. That means I know that God has revealed himself to me if that which I speak comes to pass. It's backed up by the supernatural. doesn't matter how smart I am or how, how coherent my theology is. In the end, the question is not that. All those things are valid questions, by the way. Questions of doctrine are very, very valid. But the, the point that's being made here is this. Did God disclose himself to you and do you have an in with God? And so when Isaiah is saying, saying to the children of Israel, in that do- uh, uh, therefore, in that day, you will know my name. What Isaiah was saying, it's unbelievable. That is that Zion will all have that relationship with God that Moses had. That he, they will have what Moses had. Not the kind of thing that's aesthetically pleasant when we talk about Christian things. We're talking about an in with God. An in with God which God backs up. So when he says, put on your beautiful garments, put on your strength, he's talking about not something that is your strong in art or you're strong in speaking or you're strong in music or you're strong in, 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 in math or whatever. He's not talking about something of that order. He's talking about something that is of the order of the divine. When he says, therefore my people will know my name, he's talking about the treasure that is Israel's. Now, I think that the church can sometimes be playing tiddlywings because we're not dealing with the most important things that have to do with God. We cavil on a hair's breath and we argue about, about small, smaller things, but the things that are of great import have to do with the fact that the church, in its miserable state now, is actually called to put on their own strength, their strength, not the strength of the flesh, but the strength of God that belongs to them. The Lord has opened His heart to you to disclose His secrets to you. The secret of the, of, of the Lord is with them that fear Him. That was Old Testament. That's Psalm 20, 25. But when the new, new, new covenant comes and after, after Jesus rose from the dead, the, 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 the veil of the temple was rent in two. Isn't that amazing? Now, you have to ask the question seriously, okay? And I've got to tell you, this is, this is a, an important point in my own life. I'm 65 years old. I maybe have 20 years more to go. God willing, more. I cannot waste time. 
on anything that will not bring us into the secrets of God. I cannot waste time anymore. I, I don't have many more, not much of a life left to give. So because of that, I believe God is calling the church in spite of the fact that there may be certain things in our foundations that are not there to be redeemed. To be redeemed in such a way that in the next few years, we will all experience that supernatural power and knowledge of God that comes not as a thing up here that can be crafted well and, and articulated, but as something that is hard against circumstances. as strong. Amen? Okay. The calling of God is not about fit. A lot of times we think a calling is based upon what our gifts are, what gives us most joy, what we like, and how it fits with the, the, the situation. The calling is a calling that has been made by someone who's here to summon you and me. There's a person behind it. It's not a thing we work out. It's not a thing that we try to, 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 to bump around and, and try by experience to, do, to, to, to be able to find. The calling is not the same as the things that you like and I like or can do or are gifted for. That's not calling. Those are things that are real, but that's not what calling is. Calling is not what you feel inspired about at this particular point in time. You may change that. But a calling is, is determined by the one who called. If that person who's called is still far away from you and you are not hearing him, then you have not called yet. Or rather, you have not heard the call yet. So Israel had lost their call, not because they didn't have gifts, not because they did not have favorite things they could do, not because they didn't fit into some particular agenda or some particular profile. No, they lost their call because they lost the voice of God. And they had lost the, 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 the hearing voice of a father. Now, this is not a rebuke. I'm just saying that this is something that God is restoring back to the church. Amen? And if you, you and I were, 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 were listening to God right now, perhaps what we will be feeling is a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of excitement, a lot of, a lot of excitement, and perhaps asking, can it really happen for me? If I really take it seriously, you should have a little bit of discomfort about this because of the fact that, first of all, you have to ask the question, then why am I not experiencing it? I'm not here to, to, to castigate anybody or to, 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 to down, downgrade anybody. I'm just trying to say that this is what we are about. This is what God is about. And He's not unhopeful about us. What do you say? That a motley crew like us can actually find ourselves, find, find our calling in God. The calling of God is not something you work out. A calling must, must have come from an encounter. Amen? All right, let's go to Exodus chapter 3. This is how it happened. Moses is minding his own business. He, in some ways, 
may have thought his calling was to be a prince in Egypt under all the extraordinary circumstances by which he had been pulled out of the water. Moses' name was pulled out of the water, drawn out of the water. That's a calling. Shouldn't it be a calling? The calling to be a prince of Egypt? Don't you think? And so these extraordinary circumstances, the education that he had, and the accoutrements of that, accoutrements of, the, of these things, pointed to the fact that he fit. It's a fit for him. He would have been trained in, um, in elocution and different things of government and all that. And then things go terribly wrong. He murders someone and he has, and he has to hightail out of there. That's all chapter 2. Now let's go to chapter 3. He's 40 years in the wilderness. He's on the backside of the desert. And he has nothing to do except being a shepherd of sheep. Everything else that happened for him was not his calling. He could have done all the giftedness tests and surveys and all that, and he would have found nothing. Because the calling was really not about the accompanying giftings and, and, and particular circumstances of life and abilities that he had. Not even his leanings. In fact, you, you will notice that Moses leaned away from that. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mount of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Much, much can be said about that, but we will not. So Moses said, and I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. A calling involves someone calling you. It involves an encounter with a voice, a, someone saying something to you. Until that happens, you are merely figuring out the, the special relationship between your particular leanings and gifts and the particular vocation that you may have, perhaps. May I say again, a calling involves an encounter with God. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So Moses had to, had to, had to, had to be such that his feet were in direct contact with the holy. Not separated out by any kind of human making or any kind of safety of his slippers, but he had to become completely vulnerable to the, the, the ground that he was standing, the holy ground, to the holy. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face while he was afraid to look at God. You see, the thing about God is that he loves us more than any, any of us can imagine. That we find him so awesome that we have to hide our face from God does not take away from his love. In fact, only a God who's that fierce can love more than a lovey-dovey dog God. Only a God who has that much power that makes us 
infinitely afraid of Him, has that much love to be able to love us. Doesn't that make sense? This is logical, right? So that Moses would hide his face from God does not say anything about how God does not, did not love Moses. But there is something that made Moses more open to the power and the love of God than he had ever been when he took off his shoes and he hid his face. He came into the presence of something so awesome that wasn't dumbed down, that wasn't reduced, wasn't, wasn't pitlified on account of him. It wasn't sentimentalized. He wasn't no, no, he's not just a daddy God. He was a God who was mighty, and that mighty, mighty, mighty God loved him. Loved him. To know the kind of love that doesn't get dumbed down or sentimentalized by saying he's small and he's relatable is to know the love of God in a way that is much more profound than the kind of paradigms that we have of God. You cannot. You cannot know the love, God, the love of God by making Him smaller or making Him more amenable. You will only control Him. You have to trust that fearsome though He is, like the tiger burning bright in the forest of the night, you have to trust Him that if I expose myself to the very fire of God, the very devastation, the devastation of God, I will find that He loves me. And when I find that, when I give Him the freedom to be who He is without putting upon Him, slapping upon Him my own sentimentality, then I will know the love of God. Because He could have killed me. But He didn't. And He loved me in in such a way. Amen? I have surely... So Sorry, I'm going ahead of myself. And so, God says to him, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm encountering you like you've never experienced. But if you know me and I encounter you, it will remind you of things you knew about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the other way around. There's a way in which God is intelligible. He makes sense. He's there in our history. We remember him. When we were small, we were saved from an accident or or something like that. There's something that makes sense. That's a secondary knowledge it actually gives us coordinates and gives us vectors for the, for the knowledge. But the main thing is that He encounters us out of the blue. And if you're ready to be able to wait upon Him, He will do that. He will do that for every single one of you. And when He does that, all these other things will make sense. Oh, Abraham, yeah, 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 we heard about him. Isaac, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jacob, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All that. But you cannot know Him out of that, that historical knowledge of God. It has to be an encounter with God. Amen? So that's really important. You know that, but when you meet him, suddenly, oh, I can know him like Abraham did? Really? And that's what Isaiah was saying, saying to the children of Israel. Okay, let's let's keep on moving. And then he begins to declare his heart. And that's why I say a calling is not about you, (laughs) not about me. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down. That's a tremendous condescension for God to be able to say, I have come down. What do you mean God comes down? He's not like a human being who has to take down the steps and 
count how many steps he comes down. No, when he says, I've come down, I'm saying, he's saying, I come down to your level so that I can be with you. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them in from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, etc. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Egypt, or sorry, of Israel have come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to, to Pharaoh. This is what a calling is. A calling that gives us an encounter with God so that we know his name. A calling is not about my gifts or my fit into whatever it happen, that happens. In fact, after that, Moses argues with God. You will find that in most cases, when you read about people who had a calling, it didn't fit. Jeremiah said, Lord, I'm too young. I can't speak. Correct? Ezekiel, when God called him, he was burning. He was so angry that God took him out from the temple and, and translated him out there. Jonah, not happy. Not happy. Okay. Who else? You just name it. Um, Elisha, I want to bury my, 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 my father and my mother first. Not happy. Not a fit. Not the right time. In fact, you'll find that in most callings in the Bible, the fit was not there. With Moses, he wanted to go somewhere else. Jonah wanted to go somewhere else. Jonah did not even have the compassion for the people of Nineveh. But a calling is objective. It's nothing to do with who I am or what my proclivity is or what my, my desire is or what my gifts are. A calling is something completely from the other side. It is what, what we sometimes say, it is abrupt from anything that is in me. It is abrupt from anything. But if you accept that calling, you will begin to find gifts and histories in you that make sense. But you can't do it by looking at those things and piecing them together and saying, well, this is my calling. Maybe something to do with that. But a calling is defined by the fact that someone called you and you heard it. Amen? And so Moses hears that. And I want to say this. Israel lost that calling. What does it mean? It's not that Israel lost its mission. We can know, we can take a class and fuller on mission, missiology and find out what is the mission of God in, in the Bible. That I, I took a tremendous course on biblical theology of mission. Oh, wonderful. But Israel, that's not what Israel lost. They lost the calling. Oi! You, I love you. Come and follow me. They lost that. They lost the hearing. That is what God is restoring back. Some, some miracles are not that spectacular. But you know, Chesterton says, the miracle of a train running on time for all these years, that's more spectacular than the, chain, the train avoiding some, some person who was crossing the track. I don't, you know, when I was thinking about that, I did a little calculation based upon the fact that a lot of the miracles are kind of boring because they're so regular. But for me, since 1982, when I planted kind of a church on the east coast of Malaysia, 
I have been preaching every week, every Sunday, most weeks, more than once. But I just did a calculation. If I calculate how many times God has given me a message out of the blue that I could not come up with by myself but required God to come from the other side and do something abruptly, since 1982, if I only preached one Sunday a week, and for most of my life, I preached two or three Sundays, three, three messages a week, all different, whether in conferences or in Malaysia, especially in Malaysia. But since 1982, the Lord has given me 168,532 different messages since 1982. That's only if I preach once a week. And today, last night, I was struggling with the Lord. Lord, please give me a message. And the Lord said, I've given it to you, 168,000, actually more close to 300,000 times. All different because I don't believe in preaching the same message again and again. I don't believe in that. I believe God has a fresh message everywhere. And I tell you, only a calling can do that. You cannot do it because you are smart, because I'm not. You can't do it because you're gifted, because the only gift I have, as far as I know, is eating sweets and ice cream. You can't do it because of all this. As far as I'm concerned, it takes a miracle. The miracle does not lie in the fact, the calling doesn't lie in the fact that because you did this thing that God did, God gave you success. Because it really sometimes doesn't have anything to do with it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was called. And at the moment he had of decision, he had to decide whether he would escape Germany, because he had many opportunities to do that, or he would stand and be lashed to his post. And he stayed and he was executed for that. A calling calls forth not by success or by popularity, but a calling calls forth by how much you're willing to suffer. One of the, I was just talking to my friend Malcolm, who pastored with me back in Malaysia, and he was talking about one of the people that were in our church. And he said, this guy, he pastors three other churches, and he has also a, a church in his house. And he said, you know, he has been saving up to go to plant churches in Myanmar and the poorest countries in, in Southeast Asia. And he's already prepared a team who are going to go with him and his family. He lives a very comfortable life, but he's going to go. The first question I asked him is that, how is he going to be funded? He said, not by raising funds. That he saved up for the past 25 years, enough for him and his family to go. That's a calling. The calling is not validated because of the fact that we are popular or that we are successful, but because of the fact that the calling makes us so crazy that we're willing to suffer. I was talking to my daughter, doing her, the, 
during her dark appearance. And I said, I know it's really diff- difficult, the first year of medicine. It's very hard, right? <laughs> Tell me about it. The fit was not there. She, when, she, when, she, when she went into Hopkins for the first year, I think she was pre-med, and she very soon decided that she's not going to do that. That's not what she wanted to do. She quickly moved to public health. And then she, she, after she graduated, she worked with uh, LACHC, with uh, Shannon and, 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 and their colleagues. And she walked and moved around with the people who are homeless, who are sick, who are completely destitute. And she decided that she had to be a doctor. She had not taken those quantitative science-based things. She had not done that. She had done a few and just hated it. But because of the fact that when she prayed, God spoke to her about being a doctor, she had to start all from scratch and start post-back things on all the subjects that she did not like. And then she had to go and pay for it herself because we didn't have the money to pay for it. And she had to pay for that money. And then she had to sit for the MCATs and somehow get accepted into some medical school. And after that, pay for it. And I realized, and I remember asking her, what makes you do that? You're not going to get much money at first, at least at first, to, to pay it off. And she said, I'm called not to be a specialist, not to be a surgeon, but to be a person who's a family doctor to minister to those who are poor. And she says, and I know that the debt is crushing. Student debt from medical school is the big mountain that crushes. So she went through this year. It was a very hard year, very hard year. And many times she asked, why am I doing this? I'm the most miserable of all. I'm the most miserable, but for the calling. A few months ago, there was a scholarship out. And the scholarship would pay for all the years remaining, three years of medical school, plus give stipend and all that. And so she decided to apply for it. So you can imagine, the past few days were hell for Cindy and I. Because every one of her, student, her friends that applied for it got it. Out of about 2,000 people, I think, 2,000 odd people, 2,000, I think, about 100 odd get it. few days ago, after many of us prayed in daily prayer, and I would thank the people who came for daily prayer for praying for her, and different people gave words. There was some encouragement. But sometimes a person can be so discouraged that even the encouragement can be discouraging. But anyway, we in daily prayer continued praying, and at that moment, people would give words. And I, as a father, who could not really speak that much into that situation, was encouraged. Encouraged. And one day, in a particularly discouraging period, I texted Kaylin, 
And I said, I feel I got a word from God. You see, because only a word from God can cut through all the possibilities, the permutations, the combinations, the statistics and all that, and all the, all the signs. And I got Psalm 30. It says, Weeping shall endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You have turned my sadness into gladness for me. You have taken off my sackcloth. And I shared it with her. And she did not know what to do with it. But I knew. I, I myself was comforted. So I said to her, I got encouraged. <laughs> Whether you did or not, no, I got encouraged. After I shared this with her, that was a day in which I had missed part of the, the, the daily prayer. But during daily prayer, while I was away, people had the same word. And I sh- after that, when I heard it, I was shocked. I would say, wow, we are bearing witness. We are hearing from God. See, that's what hearing from God does. And I shared with her about that. No answer. But I know that she was getting encouraged by God because her heart is towards God. About two or three days ago, she said, I got the scholarship. It will pay. It will pay for the rest of her school and also give her a stipend for that. But a calling is one in which you don't think in terms of your fit particularly, but because of something that's compelling that is about other people. Other people. Amen? I want to say so much more, but we have run out of time. And I want to invite you to just bow our heads with prayer. Lord, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, that the word those supernatural comes from establishing a commitment to you to sometimes boringly turn up in front of you every day. And to be open to you and not harden our hearts. I thank you, Lord, that you meet us every day, whether we know it or not. And the supernatural and wonderful things, the miraculous things you do in us flow out of these boring regularities and commitments. I thank you, Lord, that you called us all. And though some of us may not have heard it yet, your voice goes out unceasingly throughout the earth towards us personally. We welcome you. We bring before you so many things as yet not settled. So many things that in their incompletion, in their very lameness, 
that they portray of us make us sometimes feel that we are nothing and we are hopeless. Delying the fact that underground there is a treasure. And so Lord, we welcome you to come in these 25 or 26 days before Paul Conference that you establish within us a regular practice of devotions right now. That we will not be discouraged when in our seeking of you, nothing seems to be happening. We thank you, Lord, that weeping, though coming in the night, is given way to joy that comes in the morning. And so we welcome you, Lord, to come into these incomplete places that we experience, Lord, every day in our church as well as in our own lives. Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you particularly upon our loan appro approval for these renovations that we've done. We ask you that you straighten the path. We ask you that you come upon people who have experienced pain and brokenness and a need for healing. We thank you. You not only heal us, you make us in your image right now. So we lift these ones up. If you have a need, and it feels like where you are and what I've described to you is so far away, I invite you to just lift up your hand before the Lord and say, Lord, I give it to you. If you say that under these rags, there's bright and shining light. I give you my rags. I give you that. Come, O oh Lord. Come and meet me. Encounter me, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Come, I want to invite you to just lift up your hands right now. There may be things in your family, children, marriage, future, finances, that are so not put together, so not in order, I want to put it to you that actually underneath the disorder, there's a pristine and un, undisturbed treasure of God under the very worst of rubbishy places. Set your mind not on those things, but upon Him. And Lord, we commit ourselves to this. We com commit our hard, long slogs through this, our children our future, our jobs. All the people in our lives that are giving us pain, we surrender them to you. And we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all this, there will be one voice that we will hear above every other. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.